Blog Talk Radio.
very warm and special thanks to Susan Ravencroft, a friend who believes in me. So that's his uh, tribute in the beginning of the book. And you see that there's a... Uh, Hello, you've reached St. John Hunt. Voicemail is unavailable, so please hang up and text your message and with your return contact information, and he will contact you if he is available. Thank you. Have a good day. Okay. Um, uh, John. Uh, St. John, are you with us? Can you hear us? Hello? Okay, I guess not. Try that one again. Well, you can, Leo's going to try giving him a call. Okay, let's see. Let's fix up on this one. A little old Nick. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hello. Sorry that uh, there's hey. no mix up there. Yeah, how are you? Hey, how's it going? Good. Yeah, great to have you. Uh, we're on the air right now, so welcome to the show. This is Lila. My name is Lila, and we gave you an introduction. We read your tribute in the beginning of the book, the tribute to your brother David and to your wife. Oh. Um, yeah. That's kind of significant because really, in a way, that tribute shows what mixed feelings you have and the sadness that kind of pervades this book, I think. Yeah, it it is um yeah, between between my sisters and I who have never forgiven me for the first book, Bond of Secrecy. Um and I just uh, unearthed some letters uh that we exchanged as late as 2003 or maybe early 2004 where um my sister Lisa Lisa had written me she's so happy I'm back in her life and she loves me and she's always loved me and then at the drop of a of a pin never will never talk to me again the rest of my life. Nor will my stepmom, who I loved, nor will my sister Kevin. Is that is that all because of the book that you first the first book you published? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Oh. Uh, nor will my half brother and half sister. You know, but it was my father's wishes that I I bring that out, and you know, I'm his eldest son. You know, what what that's <laughs> it was my duty. It must have been a, a very very strange um, upbringing to be involved with. Uh, have a mother and father uh, in the CIA, um, but I know uh, Chris, your publisher. Uh, I, b- I believe his father was a CIA agent as well. If I'm not yes. Yeah. Yes, that's and, true. Yeah, and I and he has that uh, unique uh, grasp on what's going on there. But I I was very curious as to um, the when you grew up, how many. Uh, how often was he around, and what kind of a father was he? That uh, I think it'd be interesting for people to note that. Uh... <laughs> well, he had many wonderful traits. He was gregarious. He was loud. His laughter was uh, boisterous. Um, you know, you, he really um, made you feel like you wanted to do everything you possibly could to make him proud of you, because you respected him so much, and and he was. He, he, you know, when he was home and a little bit relaxed, um, he was wonderful to be with. Uh, but he wasn't home very much, and so we grew up uh, being cared for by a series of nannies and governesses and 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 so forth. And my mother was around quite a bit, but she also worked uh, at the embassies uh, doing 
you know, contract support work for CIA and, and so forth. And, uh, and then at the same time, my father could be very unforgiving and very brutal. His tongue was so sharp, he could cut you to shreds, make you feel like the littlest, tiniest person in the world. Uh, it was in, uh, you know, 30 seconds. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> parents have a way of doing it. I mean, that. I, I huh? spent my whole life trying to live up to what his ideals were, but I, I wasn't cut out to be a lawyer or a doctor or a CIA operative. Uh, I was poor at school. I had double vision. I stuttered. I was poor at sports. You know, I wasn't going to be anything that he wanted me to be, and, and I knew it, and I felt it every day. I felt the kind of disgust that he felt about me. And then, you know, when our moment came, which the Bond of Secrecy book is about, when he turned to me on that night of Watergate, I rose to the occasion. I was the only one there to help him. And that was our, that was the be real beginning of our lifelong commitment to each other. Hmm. That's interesting. But um, what was his, what was his expectations? I mean, what, I mean, here's a guy who is, uh, you know, working out of both sides of his brain, uh, you know, or both sides of his mouth somewhere. I, I don't know what were his loyalties. Where was his? I mean, was he? I, I don't. I, I I have a hard time understanding CIA agents, um, how they can be so. Um, I don't know, brainwashed. I guess I just uh, you know they're brainwashed, aren't they? Um, well, no, actually, um, they're not brainwashed because they start out. Um, having the same uh, overzealous type of um, uh, um, patriotism, I guess you'd call it, or or uh, their their personal sense of patriotism that the ends justify the means, and uh, this is our this is you know my call, his calling in life, and um, you know it it uh, I mean that was a different kind of CIA when it changed from OSS to CIA in the late 40s. That was a, a kind of an old boy network that. Uh, that then morphed during the Kennedy administration, or by the time the Kennedy administration, into something completely different. And then even after that, when Stansfield Turner took over as uh, director of CIA, you know, he fired you know many many field operatives, and that was a big mistake. So they've they've changed, they've you know morphed into different things, but they use people like my father. You know, they uh, they, they they see in him. Uh, a brilliance, uh, a, a sort of sophistication, an ability to to lie convincingly. Um, his skills as a writer, as a uh, you know, uh, his his, uh, his other skills as an organizer, as someone who can uh, who can um, you know take people and turn them you know into double agents or moles, moles and that type of thing. And they just use his sense of like I'll do anything for this country, and they. Like Nixon, you know, when he got in with the Nixon people, my mother and my father fought constantly about that. He promised he wouldn't get involved, and he did. And then she went to Europe and was divorcing him when she came back. And what happened? Watergate went, blew up, and there's my father, the big tough guy. I need you, I need you, I need you. You know, all of a sudden he's Mr. Needy, you know. And the tragic thing about all that was is that she was, you know, in the process of, leaving him. She was sick of his infidelities and all these other things and his, you know, lying and all this crap that, you know, we're going to be a normal family. I'm going to be a writer full time, you know. So, um, you know, they, uh, CIA picks people like that or they accept people like that because they know they can really pump up their 
that little kind of thing in them that, that will allow this person to do just about anything, kill people, set up murders, assassination plots, all these kinds so of things, in the name of patriotism. Now, how about your mother? How did she get involved in um, the CIA? Who recruited her? Well, actually, that's that's an interesting story. That happened quite naturally. Um, she uh, got a job with the uh, um, tre Treasury Department and uh, was uh, offered a position in Bern, Switzerland in 1944. And in Bern, of course, Bern at the time uh, was the the center of all operations of intelligence throughout greater Europe, and especially at the time, uh, State Department and Treasury, Treasury Department had a joint operation called Operation Safe Haven. So she was in, she was involved in that, and that was the tracking of of the uh, of the gold and the artworks and the precious things that the Nazis had looted from the countries that they had overrun. And uh, the uh, OSS boss in Bern was Alan Dulles, who later became CIA director. And um, so she worked in Alan Dulles's office in Operation Safe Haven. Well, there was too many arguments going on between State Department and Treasury Department about how to run the show. And uh, OSS was given the uh, the uh, you know the uh, the ability to take over Operation Safe Haven. So then she just morphed into from Treasury into OSS. And in Safe Haven under OSS, it, it fell under the X2 division, which was counterintelligence, and the SI branch, which is secret intelligence. So all of a sudden, she was OSS. Now, I was wondering if she, since she was um, involved with the um, in the burn office there and trying to uh, trying to get the recover, uh, recover those assets, uh, what did uh, it seems funny that uh, being in the CIA was she also involved with the recruitment of the Nazis into into the OSS? No, I don't believe uh, she that was anywhere near her uh, her um, her duties hey, they, at all. Yeah, but she was the. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. They, I said they they scooped up a lot of Nazis to come into the to work in the OSS. Yeah, that was that was Operation Paperclip, and uh, yeah, no, she wasn't involved in that because uh, by that time she was already in uh, uh, in Shanghai uh, working at the undercover at the. Uh, uh, she opened she opened up the first Treasury Department office in Shanghai, and when it fell to the communists, she was. Uh, on the last train uh, out of uh, Shanghai, uh, disguised as a peasant with her uh, 25 caliber uh, automatic uh, stuff to, you know, put put down her leg or somewhere like that, and uh, two big suitcases, straw suitcases of cash. And I said, Mama, that that was been a lot of money you had. And she goes, Actually, it was probably only worth a hundred dollars because you know money was worthless then. But as the train pulled out, you know, Miles' forces were coming in, and they were, you know. Um, uh, raping and you know she knew if she would, were to be caught and exposed as a as a uh, an American that she would be killed eventually raped and killed so that was pretty a tough time for her and she had an abortion right after I mean uh, she had a miscarriage right after that so that was a tough time for her but she got out and then married my dad shortly after that now where did she meet him in the service there or what. Yeah, um, she uh, then took a position under uh, 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 in uh, Avril Harriman's office as secretary for uh, Avril Harriman in Paris in 1949 uh, in the um, uh, Organization of European Economic Cooperation, which was the sort of the rebuilding of the infrastructure of Europe. 
it was basically a, a loan shark operation that the government extended, you know, huge loans to the countries uh, and supplied the necessary tools and equipment to rebuild the cities that had been destroyed. Uh, and my father was working for Harriman as a speechwriter and, and a film producer. He produced a couple of short films for uh, for OEEC, and uh, and they met. And uh, that was uh, 1949. In September 1949, they married. And then in November 1949, my father uh, officially joined CIA. Uh-huh. Now he was a uh, was he he was rather a prolific uh, writer, um, uh, but uh, how was his how was his writing uh, ability? To, uh, his writing what did he have to create scenarios for the CIA for the did he create um, like you said movies but did he create uh, yeah um, did he create uh, plots did he create uh, you know plans yes. Like yes, of like, course. Um, yeah. He uh, he was a quite well-published author. Um, in his lifetime, he had 88, 86 novels published and two autobiographies by the time right. he died at 88, coincidentally. But um, he started writing before uh, joining uh, OSS or CIA. And his, his first novel, actually, uh, East of Farewell, was the first um, novel written by a serviceman describing real-time action in the Pacific. And you want a Guggenheim Fellowship for that. So in the early years of my parents' relationship, um, he was sort of in the middle between whether he was going to go with uh, intelligence work or writing work. And my father was always a guy hungry for action. So he said, well, I can, I can do the intelligence, I can join CIA, and I can write part-time. And he always did. And that eventually became uh, one of his duties at CIA. Um, under Dick Helms' um, directorship, uh, my father was... Uh, in charge of a program to uh, recruit um, uh, to turn and recruit and turn uh, media personnel into assets for CIA, and this was I a very it. early early yeah. takeover of the media by by central intelligence. And of course, um, he was also asked to uh, build a series of, of novels with an American secret agent, uh, as similar to James Bond, because the CIA was getting jealous that Bond was so popular, and and he was British MI5, and and they needed to have someone, you know, that was equivalent to him. And so my father wrote uh, six uh, novels under the name David St. John, uh, portraying uh, his superhero, uh, Peter Ward. And they were, they were salacious books. They were concerned with uh, uh, witchcraft uh, taking over uh, the world. The Coven is one. Diabolos is another. Um, you know, but uh, Helms liked them, liked them. He kept a stack of his books in his office and handed them out to, to people he had meetings with. He was very close to Dick Helms. Huh. That was interesting. But how now? How many how many books did he write uh, for the CIA? Just curious. Well, I think at that time I, I, I think every only, book. Can I, if I can, if I can just explain this, what my the reason for my question sure. is because during the during that period of time, during the fifties and sixties, there was a major movement by the CIA to uh, infiltrate the art. Uh, and literary and uh, so on, uh, area, uh, media, you know, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. what they did in, in essence. And I remember um, uh, reading this in uh, uh, was it Col- uh, Coltrane, um, uh, Colton, I believe Colton's book. Uh, you mention him in, in your you quote him in your book. Uh, Colton. Oh, Colson, Chuck Colson. Colson, thank you very much. I'm sorry. 
Yeah. And he talks about it, uh, brings it up in, in his books, but um, the, the the infiltration of the CIA in the uh, feminist movements with uh, Gloria Steinem, she was an asset. William Buckley with, Nor- with the New Republic, uh, with the, uh, the National Review, he was an asset. firing line. Uh-huh. Yes, he was. My father recruited Bill Buckley. Uh, my godfather. Uh, right. And, you know, but nobody, you know, nobody uh, seemed to um, understand that or see that at the time. And I was, I was shocked because where we are here, the Buckley, uh, William Buckley's family lives in this area, or lived in this area. And uh, Lila knew, knew them well. And, uh, but we, uh, but we, were surprised, and we didn't. Find, and when we found out uh, through uh, the, actually interviewing the president of the John Birch Society, uh, John McManus, uh, who wrote a book about William Buckley and exposed him as a as a CIA asset, as well as uh, being a liberal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Totally yeah. Amazing. <laughs> but but that was but that was. Um, uh, that was something that wasn't known at the time, but of course it was known in the uh, in the inner circles. But in the uh, inner circles, yeah. Yeah. How how much more? Um, how much? How many movements are there now? I mean, uh, that that the CIA is involved with in the internal. Uh, um, uh, uh, how can I say the internal operations of some of these movements? Uh, they uh, not you know these. Uh, counter movements or these um, uh, things like, uh, in, a, in a sense, of the feminist movement uh, and the ERA and all of that, and then and, and then in the opposite direction, they, it seemed to, they seemed to be engaged in both sides of the argument. You know what I mean? Because they were both yes. sponsoring these people to make this argument. And uh, right, well, they 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 uh, definitely. Um this oper- this operation of media um of media control and uh, also um uh, having assets within every kind of movement whether it was left or right or conservative or liberal uh even communistic whatever they they uh, and the FBI does the same thing of course you know the black panthers were filled with FBI uh informants you know contract agents and uh this is a policy that 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 you know has continued to grow and deepen uh to this day, uh, certainly, um, uh, you know, they have uh, massive control of the media, so they don't have to have so, much, so many assets in each movement. All they have to do, I mean, a movement can do whatever they want, and how it's reported by the news is how the public is going to find out about it. And so, you know, if you control the news and control the media, then it doesn't really matter what the movement does. You know, they're not going to get the publicity. They're going to get negative uh, reviews. Uh, and that's uh, one of the early things that he did, started doing in 1965. Hmm. See, now, that, now, William Colby, uh, uh, his famous statement is that we, the CIA, owns every major, um, uh, every every major personality in, in in the media. Okay, and uh, that that was that was that was such an eye opener to me in, in a way because. Um, I've been in the media as, as opposing uh, the uh, the mainstream media, you know, trying to reveal things like your book, trying to bring out authors and activists and things. Um, and we, uh, and and to me, when I first found out that every single major um, 
uh, news media, including Katie Cork, for crying out loud, is a member of the as, of the CFR, you know, Council on Foreign Relations. Relations, um, yeah. Yeah, even uh, you know, and everybody thinks that uh, um, what's his name? Uh, yeah, see on um, um, public broadcasting, um, Moyers, Bill Moyers. All right, was such a was such a, a liberal and outspoken <laughs> liberal-minded guy. You know, he was on he was on the Council of Foreign Relations. You know, as a member, and so everything that they did, it was all guided by you know these organizations, these massive organizations, and this and the Council of Foreign Relations has been guiding uh, American foreign policy uh, covertly. Uh, you know, for for the last fifty years or more. Yes. So, Yes, no. that's true. You know, that was the. Uh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. Just, you know, my question was, they own us. I mean, they own the media. You know, they own the internet. They own everything. And uh, believe me, uh, they, it's it's becoming so it's so obvious that uh, um, it's almost hard to for people. It's hard to imagine anybody not believing it nowadays. You know, how do you, you know? How do you? Uh, you know, it's been so long. How have you, um, what's your, what are your thoughts on this? And how long have you known that, the, uh, you know, did your father or your, your father uh, ever talk about the ownership of the media? Or? Yes, uh-huh, because that was his, um, uh, he, um, they actually created an entirely new division within the CIA called uh, Domestic um what was the name of it? I can't remember the exact name of it now, but um, it was a whole um, secret uh, project to um, infiltrate the media worldwide, uh, television, broadcasting, newspapers, magazines, uh, personalities, um, anchor men, anchor women, um, those kind of things, uh, on a worldwide basis and uh, exert a constant pressure to... Um, at first, it was just to try to make the the, the America, the Western allies, uh, specifically America, look in its best light, uh, and then that grew into um, changing truth, you know, changing the truth facts of a situation into a story, and that's why nobody gets prosecuted anymore. That's why George Bush didn't go to jail. That's why George Senior didn't go to jail. That's why the Clintons are still running around out there. It's because there's no. You know the the media seems to be totally controlled in one way or another um, by uh, the the uh, really the CIA. I know the Council on Foreign Relations, but but uh, CIA be- became different at that point. And in, in the war they had with Kennedy was prior to, to JFK's presidency. The White House dictated foreign policy and had the CIA carry out specific tasks to the ends of the president that was sitting at the time. The war came about because the CIA felt that, well, the president doesn't know as much as we do, so we should be the ones to dictate foreign policy and force the administration to just stand by while we do what we need to do because we know what's best for the country. And, of course, CIA won, and the, the, America has changed ever since then. My father was involved in 1965 in that secret domestic operation, which is ridiculous because CIA doesn't have a mandate in this country. But, uh, you know, so uh, so he was involved. In that. He wrote Alan Dulles's, uh Alan Dulles wrote a book called The Craft of Intelligence, and that was actually written by my father. Really? Oh. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit, getting back to your mom, Dorothy, 
about the plane crash that killed her and its connection to Watergate, President Nixon, and what about the blackmail that you talked about? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, um, this was uh, late summer of 1972, and Watergate was still, it was front page, but uh, uh, nothing had really come out. It was They were just still talking about the burglary. And my father's name had, had finally surfaced uh, as being uh, involved. And um, and so my mother came back from Europe um, in late summer and uh, took over uh, responsibilities of, uh, of, um, of negotiating for uh, funds. Um, on my father's and my parents' side, these funds were an implicit um, agreement that that he and his crew had with uh, the White House that if anything should go wrong, and this was a CIA, uh, you know, this was standard CIA policy, and he just felt that these people were going to honor that type of thing. If the, your agent is caught in a foreign country, your family and all those related to that are going to be taken care of, payments, mortgages, doctor's bills, etc. And, um, and when the, they were caught, uh, my father started asking for funding for the, for, to pay the lawyers. He had five uh, men under him, McCord, uh, the Cubans, and, uh, and Gordon Liddy. And um, this was a, a kind of a strange idea to the White House. They said, well, why should we you know, be paying this? But Nixon was the one in the White House that wanted my father paid off. He said, if it takes a million dollars, we have to keep Hunt quiet. Open up that scab, a lot of stuff's going to come out. It's going to make Hunt look bad. It's going to make CIA look bad. It's going to make me look bad. And none of his top counsels, Ehrlichman or Haldeman, understood what he was talking about. And so it, it turned into a blackmail because there was a lot of pressure on Nixon not to pay Howard Hunt this money. And the demands kept growing. The lawyers kept charging more money. You know, families needed to be fed, mortgages paid. And my mother... Um, was uh, engaged in in, uh, in in getting phone calls at uh, odd hours of the night to tell her to go to a location and, and uh, search for a key taped under a, a booth or something, a phone booth, and then the key would correspond to a locker at the Greyhound station or an airport, and in the, lock, in the locker would be a bag of cash. And it was always short, it was always light, and uh, then they started threatening my, my parents, you know, um, the threat, one of the last threats sent to Nixon attorney was um, my father saying the Watergate bugging is only one of a number of highly illegal conspiracies engaged in by one or more of the defendants at the behest of senior White House officials. These as yet undisclosed crimes can be proved. And James McCord stated later on that Hunt had information which would impeach the president. And uh, that, it, that evidence was on a plane with my mother. Uh, she was going to Chicago to pay off a... Uh, a, um, a, a custom wire man that had built some of the bugging equipment for, uh, for the Watergate because the equipment that they were getting uh, uh, through normal channels, CIA channels and such, uh, was uh, Gordon Liddy said, this is Mickey Mouse stuff. We need real good equipment. And so they, James McCord knew a guy in Chicago that hand-built this stuff. So she was going to pay him off $10,000. And she also carried the evidence that came from my father's safe, which implicated... Richard Nixon in not only um, uh, the Watergate burglary, but all the other um, uh, uh, conspiracies that they had been uh, carrying out, which were many, many, but also his relationship to Operation 40, which was the CIA-trained assassination group that was sent out to kill Fidel Castro, his brother Raul, and Che Guevara, and a number of other 
uh, foreign dignitaries and uh, left-leaning uh, 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 presidents of, of different countries. And, um, and that's what Nixon feared. So my yeah. mother was carrying this with her. She had been being followed by people when she picked up the money. She was afraid for her life. Uh, and uh, she had a meeting on the plane with uh, Michelle Clark, who was a CBS, uh, the first African-American woman uh, CBS uh, anchor. Uh, and she was, they were going to set up a uh, press conference once in Chicago. And my mother just had, had it. She was tired of the whole thing. And she was going to blow the White House off the grounds. She had everything. And they were going to do this. So that's why the plane needed to, to, to not land, you know, because they, would, they had run out of time. They weren't paying my dad the money that uh, they had promised. They weren't giving him clemency. Uh, and uh, my mother was just sick to death of it. But this was a war between them and Nixon, and you can't, you know, she must have known you, they couldn't win. You can't fight the president of the United States. It oh, just doesn't work. You know. Well, she had to try. Now, was this yeah. uh, was that disclosed to you by your father, or did you know about this from your mother in advance? Uh, this was disclosed to me by my by my father, and uh, yeah, by my father and um, uh, and my mother before she left. Um, she she said that she was going to Chicago, and that um, she was uh, taking. Um, uh, some important uh, documents with her uh, to a safe house in Chicago, and, and this must have been what she was talking about. There was a million, a million dollars of canceled checks through a, a Mexican bank account under the name of Bernard Barker, who was one of the Watergate burglars, that came directly from the Committee to Reelect the President, which leaves a paper, which, which is a paper trail to finance the Watergate and other uh, illegal activities that they that they engaged in for the White House, all the way directly to. Nixon's secret slush fund of money, and uh, I mean, and she had that too. I want you. You had brought up uh, the name uh, Gordon Liddy, and I, I wanted to ask you, how did he um, manage to escape this? I mean, he served a little time, but I mean, he got out. And he became a celebrity. You know, Gordon Liddy. Gordon Liddy. Gordon Liddy uh, served the most time of all parties involved in Watergate. He served more. It's about four months more than my father did, which was almost four years. So I think Gordon Liddy served the most. But, I didn't really but regardless, I mean, he got out and he became a hero, you know, under the Bush administration. Um, right. Yeah, somewhat of a celebrity. Yeah. Gordon Gordon was an interesting guy. He and his wife and his kids, you know, they were at our house a lot. But, well, um, yeah, uh, you know, I guess after Watergate and after prison time, um, people had to just sort of fend for themselves, and somehow Gordon turned uh, his life around and uh, kind of relished the idea that he had uh, served in prison and they, they couldn't break him, and he wrote his book, Will, you know, which described him holding his hand over a gas burner, a uh, fire burner, you know, I and mean, just crazy stuff. He was a crazy guy, and I, it's like, yeah. but, you know, I I wondered if he... Uh, made uh, made amends with the CIA or whatever, and uh, they uh, they and he because you know he was talking the conservative speak, you know he was talking the the you know um, stuff because uh, when we were on terrestrial radio on the FM, we we were we were we were we were uh, totally amazed at the stuff he was saying, and um, uh, and all these guys. And uh, our war was against was against this conservative radio shows, but we we had, yeah. 
I never quite understood that connection with Liddy and, and how he suddenly rose to fame, you know. Uh, yeah. Because he's such a character, you know. He's just such a character. He, uh, I mean, um, his whole, he was the leader in that Watergate break-in. And when that tape was discovered uh, on the door uh, at Watergate, in the parking lot door, the second time, my father, um, who was actually the CI representative there, Liddy was, came from FBI and uh, Treasury, but uh, working with my dad. But Liddy had the final say on that mission, and my father strongly recommended they pull out. And Liddy overruled him and said, let's go ahead with it, and that's what happened. So it was Liddy's call that, uh, you know, because Liddy had no real intelligence uh, ex you know, experience. He was a treasury guy. He chased uh, Tim Leary around the country for a while, and, oh. you know, he was... Uh, but, you know, I, I don't under, now that's something I don't quite understand either. Well, why would he chase chase Tim Leary around? Well, I noticed that your parents uh, got married in Millbrook, New York, which is where Tim, let's see, Leary was living. That's where his estate was. was did they get married? Yeah. There? I guess, yeah, I guess... Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that's just a little coincidence. Um, he was, uh, see, they were after Tim Leary. He was a fugitive, and I think either Gordon was working for FBI or Treasury at the time, and uh, uh, he was on the Tim Leary's, uh, you know, he was uh, chasing uh, Tim Leary to arrest him. Gordon was also involved in the uh, that huge drug uh, operation on the border of Mexico. I forget what it was called now, but in, in the in the in the early in the late sixties. Uh, all these guys had uh, stained uh, pasts, you know. Nobody was clean there. No. But if I if I could just uh, just mention the thing with Timothy Leary, though, he was involved with with some serious uh, 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 mind control uh, uh, experiments within the Montauk Project down on Long Island. And um, it's a web, with, Leo. <laughs> what's that? It's a it's a web. No, the web, yeah, <laughs> and for you know the, what's strange is he was involved with the, with the MK Ultra and, and all of the pre uh, the, the early LSD um, experiments down there, and and uh, then all of a sudden he uh, now we find out he's he's running from the law, you know, cause, <laughs> you know, I, and the, the whole thing is like insane. It's, it's to me it's it's kind of like not to digress, but to, you know it's like. We start all the wars, we create all the criminals, and then we spend our assets going after them. It's like creating ISIS and creating uh, Al Qaeda, and creating, and then uh, you know, and then uh, we, you know, once they once they obtain their their uh, goals, and once they once they uh, undermine the entire countries and create all the chaos, then all of a sudden we go, hey, these are enemies. You know, we got to go after them, put them in jail. You know. Yeah. Yeah, how sure. Do, uh, I I bet Noriega felt that same feeling too. Yeah, I mean, how do people like your your father and your mother, uh, you know, I can see where they go into the into it, but then to be then then they but they don't realize that they're going to be betrayed. You know, it's kind of like uh, Burn Notice. That, that it's a great. Have you seen ever seen that movie that show the series? Burn. Notice? Um, no, I have not. It's about no. a it's about a CIA operative who got burned. You know, <laughs> who's who. Uh, who the CIA burned, and uh, yeah. but it, it's kind of like that. That's what happened to your father. It seemed to, you know, um, same kind of thing. Yeah, that that really shocked him. Go ahead, man. Well, I wanted to say in the beginning, you know, you lived kind of an exciting life. 
you uh, lived in Madrid and Tokyo and Mexico and Montevideo. What was that like? And then the transition to the life that fell apart. Must have been very um, scary. Yeah. You know, uh, I I I, um, I did leave a, a, a I did lead a a, a very um, you know a protected existence uh, through much of my childhood. But traveling every two or three years to a foreign country and and uh, had its um, had its downside. You know, I, I never had I never knew what having a friend was until I was fourteen or fifteen. Uh, I never spoke I rarely spoke the same language of any country that we were in. I was always behind. I, you know, I had um, dyslexia and I stuttered, and I was just a really a, a skinny, uh, kind of a sh- super shy kind of kid. But um, but we were always well taken care of. I mean, we had the best clothes. We went to private schools, you know, and uh, and it was a uh, you know. But I never had the human contact with uh, my father. Uh, I did with my mother um, more than my father, but uh, the stuff they were involved in, especially my father was involved in just kept him away so much at the time and when he was back at home he was so uh you know he was still so uh he wrapped up in whatever operation whether it was the overthrow of the Guatemalan government or whether it was killing Castro or the Bay of Pigs or you know Watergate or whatever he was he was not really there but but we did have some great memories and then when the transition came after that I finally went to public school and I I I uh that's when I realized that Oh my God! I'm just not, <laughs> I have nothing in common with these people. They, they don't even, you know. I mean, I, what was normal to me is completely bizarre. It's totally dysfunctional. And then I had yeah. to send for myself. Bill Buckley came and kicked us out of our house, and oh, lied and terrifying. kidnapped my brother, you know, and uh, and forced us to leave uh, under false pretenses. And I'd never worked before. I was 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I just it was a whole crashing down on me. And of course, I turned to substance abuse after that at some point, and spent years um, involved in that, and uh, and finally got free of it. You know, and writing these books has helped me um, get get uh, get a lot of these uh, repressed feelings out. It's a good. It's a. It's very therapeutic to write, certainly. But tell me a little bit about your brother David. Where is he now? And your sisters? My brother David is in um, Concord, California. And um, he's um, he and I are have always been close, and uh, and still are. As a matter of fact, I saw him last month when I went up to visit uh, my kids in uh, Northern California. Stopped by and spent a couple of days with him. He works um, at, at different things. I I, uh, I think he's working for a, a an LED lighting firm, selling uh, new LED uh, type fluorescent fixture type things for you know big uh, corporations and stuff that that need to. Uh, you know, conserve energy and stuff. And he's married and divorced. He has one child, and she's a wonderful, straight-A student, beautiful, and uh, loves her dad very much. But he's uh, very much alone. He never really remembered my mother very much and never really, um, you know, he feels the pain and the wounds from all of that, but he doesn't have, he doesn't have at least the benefit of knowing what he missed or what he's being, what his pain, uh, you know, comes from. And I'm, I'm sad for him, you know. My sisters won't won't talk to me ever, you know. So they're out of the picture. He's quite a bit younger than you are. Nine years. Nine years, that's just enough, so that he was very young when those things were happening. Well, what, he was uh, nine, yeah. 
Yeah. Explain, explain to, to, I'm sure you piqued everyone's interest but, with, with that question, but uh, explain what, what really happened with Buckley, because he, he was such a creep anyway. Uh, what, what, what did he do? Uh, explain what he did for, to, to your family. Well, <coughs> excuse me. Um, um, Bill, uh, Bill Buckley and and my father and uh, uh, Buckley's uh, uh, lawyer um, uh, that he introduced to my dad, a guy named Bill Snyder, they concocted a, a plot to uh, to to evict my sister Lisa and myself out of our home in Potomac. After my mother was dead and buried, my father was in prison, and Lisa and I uh, did our very best to keep the household running. Um, and, uh, you know, and keep David, you know, going to school and everything, and everything was just fine. And then all of a sudden, William F. Buckley Jr. comes over and says, uh, sorry to say this, kids, but, uh, you know, you've got to go. You know, a couple weeks is all we can uh, afford. The house has been sold to pay your father's attorney's fees, and we're locking it up, uh, so do what you can, and, uh, you know, best of luck. And uh, that day that they came over and they kidnapped my brother and, and uh, you know, ripped him out of our arms. He was screaming and kicking and my sister was hysterical and I was just furious and and they threw him in the back of a car and they drove away with him. And uh, and then we were out. They came and locked the house up and, and we were locked out. And years later... I, what? How old were you at that time? 17. And your 18. sister? Uh, she was uh, 20, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, you know, it was that was a really tough time. Um, we well, we did never we're, we're, we're never able to see my brother for years, or even get in contact with him. And he they sent him to live with his godfather, uh, who was an Operation 40 asset for CIA many years, and um, uh, in Miami. And he my brother got deeply involved in in the um, in the drug. Uh, industry down there. At 14 years old, he was an addict because of that situation he was thrust in. So nothing good came out of that at all. So lucky he's, he has a life and he's, he has a job and uh, after yeah. what happened to him. I, it's amazing. I don't hear any bitterness in your voice. But I do hear sadness. I, I, yeah. I hear a lot of sadness, but I don't hear any bitterness. I can't imagine how you must feel about the government. Yeah, I don't have any bitterness. Um, I, I realized that bitterness was one of the things that was fueling my um, my uh, substance abuse uh, issues, yeah. and um, and, uh, and and of course, then it becomes a revolving door. You know, the substance abuse then fuels the bitterness, which fuels the substance abuse, and it just goes round and round. And after 20 years of doing that, 25 years of doing that, I just uh, I realized I I, um, <laughs> I couldn't do it anymore. You know, but in that time, I, I raised two wonderful children um, and made a lot of great music, wrote a lot of wonderful songs. Music really pulled me through a lot of things. And um, and then uh, my dad and I became very, very close again. I uh, went and visited him after he got out of prison when he moved to Guadalajara uh, for two weeks. And then every couple of years, I would visit him for two weeks. And as he got older and older, you know, I was there for him uh, in the hospital when he, when he, you know, the day before he passed away. And, uh, and of course, the whole deathbed confession resulted in in my um, in my uh, engaging my father into leaving a legacy of truth because his first uh, autobiography, Undercover, was pulled off the shelves within a few months because of the 
glaring discrepancies with the testimony that he'd given in Congress about Watergate and, his, and various other things. So the publisher said, well, this is just a pack of lies. So, so we're pulling it from the, sh from the shelves. And, and my father and I had uh, agreed to, I was going to help him write a book about his true life his tr and his knowledge of JFK, if he had any. And that point, I didn't know that he had any, anything really to say about JFK. But he volunteered. You know, he was proud of his, uh, of his involvement in the assassination and, and his knowledge, his prior knowledge of the assassination teams that uh, were, were after Kennedy uh, on behalf of the uh, CIA, the secret government, they say. Uh, so he died without... About what he said about the assassination of JFK? Uh, pardon me? Can you talk a little bit about what he, his involvement with the assassination of JFK? Oh sure, yeah, of course. Um, <clears throat> this was in the last five years of his life, and uh, um, I knew his health was slipping. Uh, not so much his, his mental clarity or his, his recall or memory, but just his physical uh, issues. You know, cancer, and uh, he had a uh, amputation twice, and, and these pneumonia. You know, two or three times a year in the hospital. And and uh, in 2003, um, I went down to see him, and uh, he was looking pretty poor, but. Um, on an afternoon we had alone, uh, he said that uh, he um, he wanted to get some things off his chest, and he started talking about first about my mother, and that this whole time he he felt in his heart that she was murdered, when he would never even hardly discuss it with us, and the hair made, it's made my hair stand on end because at that time in 2003 I I didn't really know that much about it uh, I had my suspicions but but he came clean about that and. It was to shut him up, and um, then he said, you know, I worried for your, for your children because I was in prison and couldn't protect you from the people that I had, you know, served for, for, for years. Uh, I felt your children were next in line at risk, um, and uh, that was a revelation in itself. But then he started, started talking about the Kennedy assassination, about how he was uh, called uh, to a Miami safe house in summer of 63, where um, some of his uh, Operation 40... Uh, uh, chums um, were uh, were were uh, you know sitting around. Uh, they had some uh, some sheets, some planning papers around, and uh, they asked his his advice on uh, well, what if uh, you know someone were to be driving this way? Where where would you think you know the best uh, triangulation might be, or this kind of thing? And and my father and I said, well, who are we talking about here? You know, is this a business person? Uh, you know, uh, someone from another country? And he goes, no, that's son of a bitch, JFK. And he goes, you're you're talking about Killing the president, and he goes, of course, Howard. We know we know how much you hate Kennedy, you know. And he goes, well, I do. Um, who else is involved in this? And they ran a couple names: uh, William Harvey, um, uh, David Atlee Phillips, um, and uh, Cord Meyer. And uh, and when my, when they mentioned David Atlee Phillips, my father said, him, if he's involved in this, I, I don't think I can be a part of this because he's an uh, an alcoholic psycho. And he had been in a war with RFK for, for a while. But uh, David Adley Phillips, I mean, uh, but uh, uh, William Harvey played a huge role in that in the, uh, the killing of Kennedy. Um, he was the uh, in charge of this very secret uh, false defector program in Russia, starting in 1959, which Lee Harvey Oswald joined. That's how and why Oswald defected to Russia, and how and why he came back. And uh, he was, a, you know, a, a CIA and an FBI informant, an asset, a low-level asset, um, to be used as they saw fit. And it eventually turned out that what they used them for was, was the patsy. But um, 
he said that he would stay on board, but in a in a removed manner, and that's why he called it. A, he was a, a bench warmer. Uh, he means that he's he's there at the at the site, but he's not actively involved. You know, uh, pulling triggers or driving cars or anything. But if anything went wrong, he was the 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 highest level uh, operative in Dallas to make split second decisions about how to how to change something, uh, how to pull the team out to a safe house, how to get them out of the state, what you know, and all this kind of stuff. And um, and uh, yeah. Did he ever say anything about Lyndon Johnson being involved? Oh yeah, he said Johnson was was the was the top dog in it in terms of. Uh, uh, the person that that they needed the green light, and really all Johnson had to do was just give the green light. In other words, say, "Well, do this." He gets to be president, and he's not going to put up any problem. They're going to uh, they're going to rig a kangaroo investigation committee, the Warren report, with practically everybody in there hated uh, JFK, and uh, and Hoover was the other top person that needed to to be on board. And of course, uh, Kennedy was having Hoover retire that year. Uh, and um, and of course had all this blackmail stuff on the Kennedys and thought they were disgusting for their flanderings and all this kind of stuff. But um, and 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 that's all it took because uh, Hoover got a hold of all the evidence and moved it to D.C. Johnson approved the whole plan and left it to others to do the planning. There was three teams: one for Miami, one for um, Chicago, and I think uh, that the the Miami team was the te- it was a part of that team. Eventually, wound up in the Dallas team. And um, and and my father was in Dallas that day, you know, wow. for for the morning. Yeah. So, what has been the the reaction to this book, to your book? So Bond of Secrecy or Dorothy? Dorothy. <clears throat> I I don't know what the reaction has been actually. I've been doing a lot of spots for it. Um, I did the conference in November um, where I talked about uh, uh, primarily Dorothy and uh, the Watergate. Uh, how it related to the JFK assassination, and I've gotten—I mean, people are really, really supportive of me. They—they they think it's an amazing story. Uh, it should be made into a movie. Um, I mean, it's—you it, know—it's. Um, yeah, she when she read it, she thought it was a movie worthy. I—I think it would make a, a really interesting a really interesting movie, and I think a lot of people would go to see it. Have you had any nibbles on that? No, you know, I don't have any connections like that. I'm just a single person here with a very small publishing firm and uh, I, I have no idea about how to um how to get through to anybody and offer it as a as a idea for a movie to, to someone that might be interested. But it's a great role for a mature actress, a strong, you know, female lead. Uh because my mother was just so ahead of her time, you know. She was uh you know Doing uh, OSS uh, spy stuff, uh, just out of college, basically a couple of years, and she uh, took care of herself, and uh, she was always uh, uh, loving her children and making sure they were fine. But um, most of your parents were real risk takers, though. Real <laughs> must and real adrenaline running with yeah, both of them. Real that's adrenaline junkies, almost to live a life like that yeah. and a dual life that takes a enormous amount of energy. Yeah. Well, my father was, um, he was addicted to dexedrine uh, for wow. his whole entire life. That's the only way he could write 80, 88 novels and work full-time in the CIA at the same time. Uh, uh, he, was, he was all popping dexies and staying up all night writing his books. So, uh, 
he's an amazing man. He must have been a very bright, very talented man. He was a great musician too, a, a, a lead trumpet player in a, in a, in big band jazz during his college years, and a fabulous piano player. He had a perfect pitch ear. He, you could say, uh, hum a F sharp, and he would hum an F sharp. Checking on the piano was right on. Um, he could uh, score music, and um, he was an excellent hunter and a fisherman, and just a, a, an all-around Renaissance man. But it kind of went to his head, you know. I was, gonna, yeah, I was just going to say, I wonder why he chose that kind of life. You know, was it because he needed that adrenaline fix? Yeah, it was. Yeah, he he admitted it that you know he he wanted the action. He wanted to be around that, the action. Well, your mother too, correct? She she must have had that same need. Yeah, it was glamorous for her for a while. I mean, she was uh, at at one point she was sort of the honey pot, you know, the kind of the very uh, sexy, uh, sophisticated uh, CIA uh, asset that would uh, lure and and turn uh, you know. Um, the people to be double agents and moles and things like that, and you know, tracking Nazi currency and art objects uh, throughout Europe was probably very glamorous, but it was also very dangerous. <clears throat> wow! Now we were um, we were amazed, uh, we were surprised at um, uh, this book, and I, I I hope you I wish you a lot of success with it. Um, I I'm trying to think of what how to how to end our. Our yeah, discussion with you because I, it was a fascinating discussion. Um, now, our listening audience, if they want to purchase this book, um, they could get it from Trine Day Publishing. Any place else that's carrying it? Yeah, <clears throat> all the major the uh, the booksellers, Amazon and and uh, uh, Borders, Barnes and Noble, those. But they can get an autograph copy from my website, which is uh, oh. St. John St. dot net. Spelled out S A I N T J O H N H U N T dot net, and that's my website. And it's got a lot of fascinating things. I got great family photos, um, past interviews I've done, uh, my own music that I've put up there, and um, also um, some of my dad's books that he wrote that I have the first printing editions of. If any, any collectors want to want to log on there and and uh, purchase those, uh, and uh, also I offer both of my books signed or unsigned. That's great. That's a great opportunity. So, so stjohnhunt.com? Dot, dot, dot net. Dot net. Yeah. Okay. Well, excellent. And I want to thank you very much for sharing your story with us. And we certainly wish you the best of success with your with your book. And it's good to hear that you your journey, though it was up and down, and certainly there are a lot of downs in it that you've come out the other side and are able to be uh, happy and successful. Yeah. yeah. We'd also Thank like you so to, much for having me. Yeah, I would like welcome. to mention, too, that you, you can actually uh, embed this program if you want, if you're interested in embedding it into your own website where you have this full-hour conversation with uh, uh, on your book. Um, if you I would like to. to. Yeah, no, yeah. Absolutely, no problem. Uh, you just go right on to our site on Blog Talk Radio, forward mm-hmm. slash, slash LA Steel Show. Okay, let me write that down real quick here. Blog Talk, Blog Talk Radio, radio. Yeah. Uh, forward com. slash forward dot com, slash, forward slash yeah. LA Steel, S T E E L Show, O R G. Okay. And Dot org. That'll, yeah, that'll take yeah. you right to the network page, yeah. 
All right, great. Thank you so much. Really All appreciate right. it. Yeah, you go right into it and uh, just go to LA, uh, just go to that program, which will be featured tonight, and uh, you can uh, uh, just uh, follow the directions and download, or in bed rather, and uh, you can post it right onto your uh, on your own uh, blog. I will do that. If so, you have uh, any trouble with that and you can't and it doesn't work, just give give us a call. We'll give, do it for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I may end up doing that. I'm not super savvy on computer, but I can get my my way around. Thank you so much for that. Probably. All right. And enjoy. we wish you well. Very good luck. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Good, good night. And uh, that was John, uh, St. John, John Hunt. Hunt. E. Howard, Howard Hunt's son. E. Hunt's and, uh, son. Talking about his life with his mother, Dorothy, and his father, both of whom were CIA agents. And, he uh, had what started out as a very glamorous life, yeah. but uh, kind of fell apart when his parents' lives fell yeah. apart. But um, we want to thank you for joining us, and uh, thank uh, St. John on for uh, for being with us. And, and for uh, sharing his his, uh, his, his, his um, story yeah. of his mother, which was his story, too. Yeah. All right. Good night, folks. So good night, everybody, and have a uh, – and uh, actually join us tomorrow night when we do our union program. Uh, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow night at 8. Good night. Good night, folks.